Welcome to the Artist Work Ethic Podcast. I'm Mike Pilak. I'm a screenwriter and filmmaker who's always looking to maximize my time and potential as I work to break in. In this podcast, I talk to artists of all kinds who have seen success in their fields about their process, habits, and work ethic. Today on the show is actor Dean Hagland. Dean is best known as Ringo Langley of The Lone Gunman on The X-Files. He's also a stand-up comedian specializing in improv. In addition to The X-Files, he played the voice of Sid in Tom Sawyer and portrayed Langley in the spinoff of The Lone Gunman. All right, Dean, thank you for coming on with me today. Pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me. Dean, you do a lot. In addition to a ton of other TV shows and films, you've had a major role in The X-Files as Langley. Uh, The Lone Gunman got their own show on Fox. You've done stand-up, improv. You're an artist, an inventor, and you're also hosting a podcast. How do you continually stay so productive? (laughs) You know, uh, the training that you get with improv comedy is to say yes. Yes. And, and so unfortunately I've taken that to when somebody goes, Hey, you want to do this? I go, yes. And let's do more stuff. So, you know, there's a couple things uh, that are getting shunted on my giant whiteboard over here, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a trick to stay organized and it's a trick not to uh, grab extra projects. So, yeah. So to answer your question, how do you stay, you say yes to a lot of projects that come through you uh, maintain kind of a daily, you know, I show up here in this uh, studio space, whether I'm feeling it or not, and whether uh, I got uh, any projects that need to, I always have projects going, I mean, good Lord. But, uh, you know, in terms of, it's like, a, it's like going to the gym, you know? The, con- the consistency is super important. Consistency. And, you know, when I, we first moved here, of course, it was from Sydney, Australia. So the culture shock you can imagine was astronomical uh, just in terms of not having any winter gear, time change, you know, it's uh, hot, it's hot in December there and cold in July. So all of that was take, took a long time to, to coalesce everything into a thing. So for a while there, my, my work habits were quite in disarray, shall we say, Sure. you know, once the, once you got a dog too, the thing that I was doing in Australia was, was every time I walked the dog, I'd take a small paint set with me and then we sit and the dog would eat some food or a snack. And then I would just paint whatever, wherever the dog sat down, basically. Nice. Yeah. Find it, finding, uh, carving out those little few minutes here and there that, that all yeah. add up. And the dog kind of started really enjoying it, you know, cause you know, dogs like walking, but they also just like, Hey man, let's just take a moment right here in this different space and uh, just have a seat. So that was a real handy thing to have because the dog always has to go out. You know, there's, yeah. it's not like, ah, I don't feel like going out. And then the dog will just take a crap on your carpet. So what, what experiences would you say have shaped your work ethic? Uh, definitely. I, my university training, what I did that really helped was a lot of students, you know, they go to art university and they do their studio and, you know, in theater training, you get all relaxed and you do all this work to open up your channels, but then you also have to take your academics. And then suddenly you're sitting there and you're like writing essays and you're listening to lectures and you just sort of sit and you sort of lose 
all of that stuff. So what I did is I got all my academics out of the way first. I did everything for like two years, knowing full well that I was going to go into the studio program, which I got a degree in multidisciplinary arts to be a performance artist. So I did modern dance, theater, visual art, and music kind of all at once. So again, my day started at seven and then I was doing uh, comedy and theater sports at night. So I was going, getting five hours a night. <laughs> I still do actually. I really got used to it. Once you get that going from a university level, I get your MFA, then you go, it's, it's that continuation that you just roll out of it. And because I didn't have academics to go, I'd have to sit in front of a keyboard rattling out essays. I already got that out of my way. It was just sort of a natural progression into career. And to build on that, what what kind of habits did you maintain while you were working to break into TV and film? Uh, my theater training's a little different. It wasn't uh, method. I went uh, with this theater training that's, um, it's a, you learn the physicality first. So you work from the outside in. Uh, it's developed by a French group. I guess it's a technique known as the cock. And so, yes, uh, Jeffrey Rush is a big proponent of it. So you develop all your physical gestures and stuff first and let that influence and inform your emotional score so that you're not just this raw, crazy, emotional guy, but you also have technique and control and hitting your marks and stuff. So that required a lot of yoga and a lot of gym time and stuff like that. So I still do yoga five days a week. My Fitbit tells me I'm walking all over the place. So there's a lot of that that I kept, a lot of just getting a studio and maintaining your studio time. And then, you know, when you don't do it, you really miss it. You really feel it. So once it's sort of in you molecularly, then, you know, it's kind of there forever sort of thing. And you mentioned uh, that you, you carve out your minutes here and there these days, walking your dog. How else would you say you structure your day to make sure you're always moving forward and progressing in whatever you're working on? That's well, that's been the toughest in terms of um, uh, doing that because I'm not blaming the uh, construction workers of Michigan or nothing. Some of them are great, but this place is a bit of a lemon. You know, in that movie <laughs> Money Pit, somebody's referred to that like 18 times since we come here. So we've had to swap out hot water heaters, both furnaces, air AC unit. We had to. Uh, uh, paint, I drop in a new dishwasher, sink, garbage disposal. I got a gas stove that uh, needs installation. I was going to do it myself. But as you said, you know, what takes priority at this point? I could be a handyman on this place 24-7 yeah. and never pick up the brush again. And once all of the neighbors find out, oh, you're a handyman, could you come over and look at my, you know, that it's like, oh, no. Don't mention you're doing your own home repairs around this neighborhood. It's like having a pickup truck. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? So, so yeah, you maintain this, uh, okay, how much am I going to do on the house and how much am I going to continue progressing and uh, everything informing your work, right? I mean, the change of environment, the change in uh, your daily structure, you know, and that gets really disrupted when you move from one, never mind, one continent from under to over, yeah. like all of that is uh, is a major brain shift stress stress thing. So, did that answer your question? So, what do I do? Yeah, you really have to consciously go getting this space set up first, 
which even isn't totally set up yet, was kind of uh, mission one. So that from there, you could sort of have a daily spot to go. And, and then just making sure you're getting in that chair. Getting in that chair. In your opinion, how important is perseverance to success? Well, that's everything, right? It's not genius. It's always perseverance. The guy who just hung out the longest, right? This man, Einstein said that. I'm not the smartest guy. I just stuck with my problems longer than everyone else. Because you're not even like going, oh, my gosh. I My favorite art teacher always said, you know what? You got uh, between 10 and 15,000 terrible paintings inside of you. So get those out of the way right now. So, you know, just make 15,000 pieces and, and then you'll get to the good ones. And so I always think of that. Of course, I lost count. I think I may be at 2,000. But, you know, I got another 8,000 terrible things that I'm going to paint. And then there'll be some good stuff on the other side of that. Yeah. I mean, I've experienced that as a, a, a the screenwriting world is what I'm trying to break into. And oh. and boy, I, I look back at that first script or two that I wrote and it's just, it's, it's, it's rough. And, yeah. you know, it's just getting that, that stuff out of the way and allowing yourself to improve and work on your craft has been yeah. very important to me. Yeah. We just wrote a screenplay, uh, me and my uh, podcast partner, top secret, can't talk about it. But again, you know, we knew there was going to be multiple drafts. We sent in the first draft. We said, you know, here's the scope and the parameters of the characters we see it and stuff like that. Knowing full well, we were going to go and tear it all down and rewrite from page one and, and not be precious of it. That's the other thing. It's like with screenwriting, with painting, with all the arts. I mean, that's why I kind of like improv a lot because you're just giving it away at the moment and you're not going, Oh, that was such a great lot of this or hanging on to stuff. You really just let go. And so I could work with that in all the mediums. So what in your work ethic do you think has brought you your success? I probably the perseverance, but I always, I never think I'm not working. That's the thing. Even when I'm, you know, building a steam room and stuff like that, it's informing me, of like, oh, that's a funny bit, or that's going to be a great uh, piece of art. Or, you know, I technically, as I built all that tile, I really felt I was working sculpturally, you know, even though they're flat walls and stuff like that, with the different borders and grouts and stuff like that. Sure. You sort of feel like, hey, this is like an, another medium that you can work with. So at, at no time do I ever think, ah, I'm not being... Uh, the artist or the creative person that I am. I always think I am just some of it has to do with 240 volts. Some of it has to do with watercolor pens, you know, that sort of thing. So, so in my head, uh, I'm always an artist. <laughs> gotcha. So I, I've got to ask my, my X-Files question. Oh yes. Let's get through them. Um, how did you approach uh, the work that went into the character Langley and, you know, I, I grew up kind of in a punk rock world. Was that part of the character brought by you or was that something that was kind of given to you through the script? Uh, it was half and half. I mean, James Morgan and Glenn Wong wrote the gunman the first episode in season one, it was episode EB and they had said they saw three guys at an airport handing out UFO literature and one was in a leather jacket and one was in 
uh, a rock shirt and had long hair. Another guy was in a suit, right? And they were like, well, how are these three together? They thought that was great. They said, we're going to put that in a TV show one day. So in it specifically, my Langley is wearing a uh, Ramones t-shirt and they have to get clearance from the lawyers and all that sort of thing. So that part was in it, but the long hair and the glasses and, and even the way at no time did they say these guys were computer nerds. And because I was going to university or just got out of university when that, when I got that, I had known all these, uh, guys in fact i had a band a punk band with some physics students and uh you know we played they, there was a guitar a singer and i was just playing on trash cans in the common area right as a drummer and you know you sing louis louis and everybody's getting liquored up but these guys were advanced physicians and computer uh programmers but they had you know party rock ethic one of them went on to do um made millions of dollars by having an equalizer that could self-adjust based on the uh, size of the stadium with just one guitar player hitting one chord. The microphones would pick up all around the stadium and then the board would just equalize itself. It became this piece of software that he sold for millions. Interesting. And uh, yeah, and so he was a friend of mine. So when they said, oh, you know, up until that time in film and television was always the guy, you know, pushing the glasses back in the pocket protector. And uh, I didn't know a single guy like that at all. They were all iconoclastic, quirky, into really obscure rock bands and uh, just diverse, right? So I kind of approached it that way and then just brought whatever comedic stuff based on all my stand-up and improv background. And one other question that doesn't have to do with work ethic, but have to ask, what's your take on the recent government UFO report? Uh, well, you know, I'm happy that they are acknowledging it. Uh, Steve Bassett was a friend of mine and he was a big proponent for years of the disclosure project. He would go off into Washington and uh, often with senior uh, retired uh, Department of Defense from Canada and the guy from Brazil who was in the uh, Air Force uh, and talk about the need to release this information. Do not classify if there are species from other worlds trying to communicate with us. The advancement of the human civilization is at stake and you, you're not doing anybody any military favors by hiding this stuff. That said, now releasing it going, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff and we don't think it's alien and we don't know what it is. Well, that doesn't make anybody. <laughs> it's just like, what do you mean you don't know? You got all these surveillance and radars and, you know, you got a three Hubble space telescopes pointing downwards and you can't even get a serial number off this bloody thing. Yeah. So, and even, you know, Chris Carter's got a record going, there's way more than what they're releasing, right? So that was just part of the... Um, the pandemic uh, relief package was on page 200 or whatever. There was a line saying you have to release all classified UFO stuff. And so all, how, how do you, how do you categorize all UFO information? Well, here's sure. some weird stories that you're willing to talk about, but is that really all? Well, cause what are you classifying UFO? Well, yeah, we know this is an advanced anti-gravitational device we know the science behind it we don't know who built it you know specifically or if is it populated with aliens or is there aliens like nothing 
none of them actually ever said in, there's alien life. Yeah. It's just said there's these vehicles that we don't know how they're doing it. It's and just unexplained. Yeah. Unexplained. Yeah. That's why they rechanged it to. Yeah. Unexplained aerial phenomena. Right. Mm. So it's a U, a U app. Yeah. We'll see what happens. I've been asked to do a, there's a new uh, cable access uh, show about all of this information. Oh, uh, nice. Possibly host it. So, so again, I said, yes. I mean, I'm in the early stages of it, but for sure. It'll be fascinating because there's a timeline or a timeline, a through line between X-Files, Disclosure, a lot of the people working on it. You know, Dr. Roger Lear, the late Roger Lear, who was uh, preeminent in removing alien implants. He had like 21 of them in his collection. And, you know, so there's a lot still that isn't in any of those reports. So uh, is there anything else that you want to talk about or that you want to plug before we go? Well, let's see. Uh, For the last... 14 years, every Monday, uh, my co-producer and I have been doing a free podcast <laughs> called Chilt Back Hollywood Hour, where we talk about films and school closures and celebrity deaths and uh, just whatever, you know, mapping it, changing the way you listen to the internet since 2007. ChillPackHollywood.com. Of course, ChillPack was my invention back in 2004, and then I sold the patent, and then you can't find that product anywhere. So <laughs> don't ask me what happened. Um, uh, another new series that I is coming up. I talk to people because I've been doing so much renovation. I talk to people who are buying and renovating haunted houses. Nice. So yes. So it's called hellacious renovations. And we do like the John Proctor house and the Winchester and uh, you know, the idea of uh, ghosts, are they, location specific or are they in the antique flooring you know if i rip up all the flooring and take it down to the studs do i throw out the ghost when i put it all in the bin and then redo the walls or does the ghost go i hate this tile you chose i'm leaving i'm I'm with the foundation (laughs) right yeah where where exactly is that ghost inhabiting right (laughs) so and if you renovate it all to with an inch of uh you know the wood like a lot of these places you can't really call historical anymore because you've taken out every uh, gorgeous detail and put in some ridiculous Wayfair Ikea monstrosity. So yeah, look for Hellacious Renovations. It's a podcast with um, a website that has a video tour of the house. Awesome. Sounds cool. Yeah, it's going to be cool. All right, Dean. Well, thank you for coming on and, and talking work ethic and perseverance with me. Thank you very much, Mike. You've inspired me to get back to it. Awesome. Thank you so much for listening today. Please subscribe to the Artist Work Ethic Podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts, and please rate and review the show. Follow us on Instagram at The Artist's Work Ethic, and check out theartistsworkethic.com.